Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel according to Mark in the 8th chapter, starting at verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God add understanding to the reading of this word. Church, it is so good, so good to be with you this morning after years of prayer and many conversations with Pastor Kara and many, many moments of hoping to be with you, to join in worship with you. It is good to be here. I am Reverend Caroline Hamilton Arnold. I have the privilege of serving as Associate Director for Domestic Disaster Response with your Week of Compassion, the Relief, Refugee, and Development Mission Fund of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in the United States and Canada. You got close, Caroline. Essentially, that means we are tasked as a ministry of the Disciples of Christ to match and connect disciples' resources to places of crisis and need around the world. When those crises are because of natural disasters, when those crises are because of war and persecution that leads to the displacement of people, and when those crises are because of the ongoing struggle of extreme poverty that faces so many communities in our world. We are one way that disciples are present to be a source of hope, to be companions in the journey, and to be a witness to the love and power of God. Mostly I'm here this morning to say thank you. This congregation has long been a faithful part of Week of Compassion and the ministry we do together. You have been faithful givers for years. You are members of our Circle of Compassion Endowment Fund, and now you are hosts to volunteers through partnership with us and others. And so thank you. We are only able to do this ministry because of the commitment and generosity of disciples. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Spirit of God, move in this place. Move in my mouth that my words might reflect your wisdom. Move in all of our minds that we might receive your wisdom. Move in our hearts 
that you might place something from deep within your heart, deep into ours. Move in our lives, that we might be agents of your love, your compassion, your grace in the world. Amen. Elizabeth comes from Tonj County in South Sudan. As a country, South Sudan has only existed for a dozen or so years, having been founded in 2011 after decades of civil war in Sudan. And the echoes of conflict have plagued this young nation as they have also faced floods and extreme droughts. Poverty and hunger present significant challenges for the people of South Sudan, and among the most vulnerable are women and girls. Ten years ago, as a teenager, Elizabeth had complications in childbirth that resulted in the loss of her baby. For years, she lived with a fistula or hole in her bladder, and it has caused her to be incontinent and struggled with fertility, which in turn led her to be ostracized from her community. Elizabeth is not the only one. Many women in South Sudan develop fistula due to the extremely poor prenatal health care and lack of services to girls and women when they give birth. Atong Atal and her son Deng Magai are from a village called Majuk in the north of South Sudan. When she developed a fistula following childbirth, her husband rejected her, leaving her ill and alone. When I read the gospel text for today, I think of these women and I wonder if they have been told their suffering was simply their lot in life. Or even perhaps punishment for some unnamed transgression. I think of them and the millions of women and downtrodden people throughout the centuries who have been told that their suffering was just their cross to bear. That their misery their mistreatment was somehow a marker of their faith, an acceptable, even expected part of following Jesus. Such readings of this passage take into account only verse 34. Let them take up their cross and follow me. In so doing, they overlook the critical next sentence. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. Jesus doesn't suggest here that suffering for its own sake is redemptive or faithful. He doesn't call us to take up a cross of suffering in order to uphold or excuse human domination or inequality. Rather, the cross we take up is for the sake of Christ, the Redeemer, the reconciler, the liberator of all creation. It's a cross we take up for the sake of the gospel. If we remember Mark chapter 1, that gospel is the good news of the nearness of the kingdom of God. In writing about this passage, Reverend Dr. Caroline Lewis suggests 
To deny yourself and take up your cross invites us into what the cross can also mean. Not just death and suffering, but God choosing human relationships. The cross represents God's commitment to humanity. She continues the thought that yourself, that your call to take up the cross and lose one's self for the sake of the gospel is an invitation to imagine that yourself needs the other desperately, intimately, that we might join in God's complete commitment to relationship and humanity. To lose one's self for the sake of the gospel is not about seeking martyrdom or becoming passive victims within systems of oppression. It's not about abandoning the identity of our image of God-bearing selves. Rather, it's about acknowledging that in isolation, we are inclined toward self-absorption, selfishness, a skewed sense of our own importance. Our fullest, most abundant life is found when we give ourselves fully to relationship with God and God's beloveds. We find true life in living with and for each other. Now, millennia of religious teaching have made this point. But recently, social scientific studies have borne out the lesson as well. Generosity increases our overall happiness. Cooperative relationships lead to lower rates of anxiety and depression. Reciprocal giving enhances relationships and overall well-being. The Surgeon General released a report last year that made the rounds, at least in clergy circles. It was entitled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, the U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory on the Healing Effects of Social Connection and Community. Seems like a very bureaucratic way to say church. Notably, the report highlights the ways isolation and loneliness have measurable negative impacts on our physical well-being. Lacking social connection has worse overall impacts on our health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Conversely, one of the most powerful determinants of individual and collective health and quality of life is the strength of social connections rooted in mutual care. Those who lose their lives for the sake of the gospel will save it. if you'll let me Bible nerd for a second. Structurally, if we look at the whole narrative of the Gospel of Mark, this chapter serves as a kind of pivot point, a turning point in the Gospel. Prior to this chapter, there are some moments of conflict, but it's mostly a mix of teachings and miracles. But from this point forward, things get real. It gets serious as Jesus gets closer to his own cross. A few chapters after this moment in chapter 8, we find a story which I think in many ways is an embodiment, a living example of Jesus' teaching here in chapter 8. So let's turn for a moment to Mark chapter 12. In this chapter, Jesus has been teaching in the temple, 
It includes the exposition of the greatest commandments, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we'll pick up the story at verse 38. I hear some page rustling, so I'll give a second. Chapter 12, verse 38. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The hypocritical religious leaders and the rich folks conspicuously pouring their large sums into the treasury contrast with this generous widow and provide a sort of case study between those who seek to save their lives and those who give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Even in their religious actions, the scribes and rich folks are looking out for themselves, posturing for power and influence, flaunting their social and economic wealth. The widow, on the other hand, in trying to impress anyone, neither is she embarrassed by the meagerness of her gift. She gives not for herself. She gives of herself. Reverend Don Weeks, co-pastor of Connection Christian Church in Odessa, Texas, draws out particular meaning from the placement of this widow's story within that whole narrative of Jesus' journey to the cross. She writes, Like the widow giving her offering, when Jesus offers his life, it is both an extravagantly generous act of trust and a powerful witness of resistance against systems that seek to snuff out such tender sacrifice. Jesus, too, will give all he has to live on. He will give all he has to live on. And that's what Week of Compassion does. That's what disciples do through Week of Compassion. We bring what we have to live on, which becomes a resource for others to live on. And that mutual giving is how our story, this gospel story, lives on as well. The mutual contribution of those most affected, combined with dedicated partnerships rooted in connection and integrity and accompaniment, put flesh on God's grace for everyone involved. Our partners in Afghanistan use our gifts to undergird local staff who are determined to provide the greatest possible educational opportunities for girls despite social and political barriers that make it dangerous to do so. Co-ops in the Chaco region in South America use our gifts to seed microloans for indigenous communities so they can bring 
produce and locally produced honey and traditional handicrafts to market, generating income for their communities and protecting their ancestral lands. And right here, at First Christian Church in Madisonville, you've witnessed this joining of gifts firsthand. Mr. and Mrs. B lived in a home with only one handicap accessible entrance. When the 2021 tornado demolished that side of their house, Mr. B was unable to enter or exit the home. With support from Week of Compassion and others, Fuller Center Disaster Rebuilders led the repairs on the home and an addition of a porch and ramp to the home's second entrance, including Mr. and Mrs. B. I hear nearly 30 families have moved home with the support of volunteers who stayed in this very building. And that's but just one piece of a much larger recovery. The Hopkins County Long-Term Recovery Group has facilitated tens of thousands of hours of volunteer labor and distributed hundreds of thousands worth of financial, material, and in-kind service including grants from Week of Compassion, so that survivors of the tornado can get back into their homes. Joining us in worship today are our friends from Brethren Disaster Ministries who are in town for leadership training, which is happening on their volunteer site in the warehouse of Habitat for Humanity. Each organization, each volunteer, each survivor adds their piece to this work for a new community, a new hope. Whenever we take up an offering, pick up a hammer, lift up our prayers, we take up our cross and join in God's ongoing commitment to humanity, the ongoing work of bringing wholeness in a fragmented world and hope in the midst of suffering. In Yuba, South Sudan, Elizabeth and Etonga Tal courageously sought care. Each traveled for days, journeying over 350 miles to a medical clinic operated by Week of Compassion partners. Given the lack of medical infrastructure in the country, the vast majority of medical services are provided by non-governmental organizations, especially services like pre and postnatal health. Providing such care is hard, and the women travel long distances. Truly amazing are the nurses and doctors and the care they provide, but equally important is the community space they create for these women to support one another and empower one another to move forward. And the impact is incredible. Last year, both Elizabeth and Atongatal were able to receive surgery to repair their fistula, and both surgeries were fully successful. They left the center to return to their communities with their lives and dignity restored. Transformation for new life. It's what happens when the widow gives of herself. It's what happens when Christ gives his whole self. It's what happens every time we give when we give selflessly. We give of our lives for the sake of the lives of others 
And in so doing, we discover the gift of God's life abundant, a gift that lives on, a gift to live on.